following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Selfishness is mankind's greatest problem. Now we can take a step back and, and say, yes, selfishness is a sin, and probably sin is mankind's greatest problem. But when we look at selfishness in particular, there are a whole host of sins that come forth. Think about it in terms of countries. Why does one country go to war against another? They covet their land, or they covet their, their goods. Or children, who among you, when you see one of your brothers or sisters playing with a toy that you want, how many quarrels and fights come about because you want what they have, right? And even as adults, we struggle with this, right? And the world very much operates in this way. And even as Christians, we, we still struggle with selfishness. Though we've been cleansed of our sin, we've been redeemed, we now have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we still wrestle with selfishness, with, with desiring to put ourselves before others. We still as Christians struggle with this very same sin. And here in, first, in the second chapter of Thessalonians, Paul is continuing to defend himself because he's having that very charge leveled against him. The, these, a few people have come into the church of, of Thessalonica and they've said, you know that guy Paul who was here? Well, he was just here for selfish gain. He's just a con man. He's, he's, a, he's one of those traveling charlatans who comes in and, and, and seeks to enrapture you with his fine words and speech only to gain something from you. And so Paul is making his defense. He's doing two things, really, as, we've, as we have been going through the second chapter. Paul is defending himself in one way, but he's also reminding the Thessalonians of his example to them and an example that they are to follow. In, in, chapters, in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, we saw that Paul defended his motives. Right? He said, we did not come to take, but we came with hands full, hands full of the gospel, to give to you. In 5 through 8, we saw that not only were Paul's motives pure, but his manner among them was pure. That his motives were the driving force of how he treated them. And we're given that great analogy of like a nursing mother with her child. The care that Paul exercised toward them. The love and the affection he had. And now as we come to verses 9 through 12, Paul is continuing the same line of thought continuing to defend his, himself, and more importantly, his ministry as an apostle of Christ and the name of Christ. But he also continues to lay before the Thessalonians and us this evening an example to follow. That example is this, that the conduct, the character, and the care of the Christian should display a life of selflessness toward others. That the conduct, the character, and care of the Christian should display a life of selflessness toward others. And I want to look at this this evening in three, three sections. Verse 9, the conduct of the Christian. Verse 10, the character of the Christian. And verses 11 and 12, the, the care of the Christian. So if you look at me real quick at verse 9. Paul says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship 
how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul begins, again, by reminding the Thessalonians of what had occurred. He, he uses the language, for you recall. He says, remember how we acted. And he uses the term brethren. This is not just exclusive to men, but this is an inclusive term, both men and women. A very affectionate term. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, working night and day, not to be a burden to any of you. Paul's reminding them that when he was among them, he was not lazy. If anything, he was not lazy. But he worked night and day. And now we read from Acts chapter 18 that Paul, Paul was a leather worker, or he was a tent maker. And the, and the two words used here for labor and hardship give the sense of manual labor. So Paul was not only working in, in, to preach the gospel, working in a more spiritual manner, so to speak, as we'll see later on, but he was physically working. And when Paul is saying that he worked night and day, it's not that he worked a 24-hour day constantly. But like Paul said in chapter 1, when he said, we pray for you ceaselessly, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of hard work. It's a lifestyle of toil and labor. That Paul did not sit back and relax in, in the thought of, I'm an apostle of Christ, or I'm a follower of Christ. I, I deserve this. But instead, Paul knew that his conduct among the Thessalonians would have a direct impact on how they received the gospel. That his, his, his physical work of, in his case, leatherworking or tent making, was to be a conduit which he could proclaim the gospel. They were to go hand in hand. Now, perhaps Paul used that opportunity as he's in the marketplace selling goods to, to, to converse with people about the gospel. Maybe that's the case. It doesn't exactly say. But nevertheless, Paul is desiring that as he comes to this people to, to, to preach the gospel, he does not want to burden them. Earlier in the chapter, Paul tells us that he could have made demands. That as an apostle of Christ, he could have, he could have asked for something in return. And we, and, we are, and we read in Philippians chapter 4 that actually the Philippian church did send Paul a gift while he's in Thessalonica. But see, the difference is that Paul would receive gifts from an established church, but here in this new mission work, Paul did not want anything to come between the Thessalonians and the gospel. He didn't want a stumbling block to be laid before them. The only stumbling block was that of Christ. The only thing that he wanted to, to give to them was Christ and not burden them with anything. Paul, not only, Paul, Silas, and Timothy not only engaged in physical labor, but also spiritual labor. Paul says that as we labored among you, we not only worked with our hands, but we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. This was first and foremost their, their primary work, right? This is why Paul is in Thessalonica. This is why he's traveled so far from Jerusalem with Silvanus and Timothy. He came to preach the gospel. But he knew that his words and his lifestyle were interconnected and inseparable. So that's why he, he, he knows that they're interconnected and he labors hard so that he only brings to them. He's, only, he's giving. He's giving. He's not, he's not selfish in the sense of seeking gain from them, but he wants to impart to them a spiritual gift. And I think that Paul lays for us nowadays a very good principle. That Paul and his fellow laborers were not only good Christians, but they were faithful ministers. Paul, 
we all share in the same calling as Christians, right? But in our particular vocations, we differ, right? Some of us labor with our hands. Some of us labor with our minds. Some of us young here are students, right? But nevertheless, Paul, Paul sought excellence in both because he knew, he knew how important the view of one would affect the other. For instance, how would it be viewed if at your work you were lazy and slothful? But then, but then you had the opportunity to share the gospel with one of your coworkers. It has a direct application. It has a direct implication on it that they would look at you and say, why should I listen to you? You don't look very godly. You don't seem very upright in your conduct and in your character. So why should I listen to what you have to say? In the same way, with we at home, as fathers and mothers with our children... If we, if we act a certain way, but then exhort our children another way, how quickly will they look at us with a questioning face, saying that your words and your actions, they, they don't meet. There's a, there's, a, there's a disconnect between the two. Paul knew that. Paul knew that. And he, and he gives us this great example of us today, uh, to strive to that end. That not only are we to be, we are to be faithful in our callings as Christians, to proclaim the gospel to those whom we meet and in all of our circles and to embody Christ-like behavior, but at the same time that our conduct in our secular vocations has a direct imprint upon the impact that we will have. Paul not only knew his conduct was important, but also his character. If you look at me at verse 10, Paul says, You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we have behaved toward you believers. Paul says that his character mattered just as much as what he did. Not only what he did, but the manner in which he did it. And Paul calls on two witnesses here. First, he calls on the Thessalonians themselves. He says these people had come into Thessalonica and they're telling these people that they should disregard Paul. But what does Paul say? You were eyewitnesses. You saw Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. You saw all of us working together. You saw us with your very eyes. How, how, devote, how devout we were. How, how upright we were. How blameless we were before you. Right? He calls not only on the Thessalonians to remember how they acted among them, but he also calls on God. Now Paul might have Deuteronomy 19 in mind. In Deuteronomy 19, we have the the law that no charge is to be brought except on the grounds of two or three witnesses. So Paul may be inverting this and saying, well, you have your witnesses that are against me. Well, here are two witnesses of my own to defend myself against these charges. But also, Paul calls on God for another reason. He references the fact that God is the one who will test the intentions of his heart. Paul states that in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 4. That it, is, that it is God who tests the, heart, the tensions of his heart. That he, he's not there to please men. He did not come there with a love of flattery, but he came there with a love for God and a love for those who have not heard the gospel. Not only is God the one who will test the intentions of Paul's heart, but Paul also knows that, he, that God is the one whom he will stand before on that last day and give an account for his motives and his conduct. That Paul will stand before God and give account for every thought, word, and deed that he ever spoke. Not only thought, word, and deed, just to the outward, but also to the motives. 
the motivations of the heart to do what we do. Paul, I think Paul had this on the forefront of his mind as he engaged with the Thessalonians. That love for God and love for them drove him to these actions. Paul doesn't stop there. He continues, as he stated his two witnesses, he then reminds them of his conduct and his character towards them. He says that he was devout, he was upright, and he was blameless. Now, this is the third triad, the third, the third list that Paul gives here. And I don't know if Paul is necessarily... The first two are negative, and this, this third one is positive. And whether Paul was answering those errors or not... Paul, he, he seems to counter them. He was, first, he was accused of error and flattery. Secondly, he was accused of impurity and greed in verses 3 and 5, respectively. And then he was accused of attempt to deceive in verse 3. And he was, attempt, he was, he was accused of seeking glory from men in verse 6. But Paul counters all of these by saying, well, you say that I was in error and flattery. But he says, no, I was devout. I was devout. I was holy among you. My character toward you was pure. It expressed an attitude of piety and reverence toward God, which affects a person's conduct. Paul says that I was, I was so impressed by how I was to act before God, how God would view me, that it was through that that I acted toward you. That his conduct was, was, was pure in the sense that that he knew that God was the one who was testing his heart. He says that he was upright, countering the charges of impurity and greed. Upright, simply being righteous. The conduct which accords with justice. Paul knew that, that if, he, if his conduct, if his character was not upright before the Thessalonians, his words would fall flat. How can Paul preach of the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God, if he himself does not display that same righteousness and, and, and a character that has been transformed by the gospel? And thirdly, he was accused of attempting to deceive and seeking glory from men. But Paul counters that argument by saying, no, I was blameless among you. I was above reproach. Simply, his conduct was free from the accusation that, that his actions fell below the standard of righteousness. Above reproach. That means that when accusations were flung against him, they did not stick. No, Paul was not sinless. But nevertheless, his motivations, his intentions were pure. Yes, Paul probably made mistakes. He probably offended people. But he did not do it out of spite. It was, not a, it was not an intentional attack. But yet he was blameless among them. Paul then goes and says, How uprightly, how devout and upright and blameless we, we behave toward you believers. Here I think Paul is just restating who he's calling on as a witness. It is not as though Paul didn't care what outsiders thought of him. 1 Timothy 3.7 contradicts that where Paul tells Timothy that to walk carefully before outsiders so that you have not a charge brought against you. But Paul is just simply referencing back to who he's calling as his witnesses. And again, this is a good reminder to all of us today that our motives matter. Our character matters. How often do we sometimes go through the motions? Paul could have gone to Thessalonica 
He could have preached the gospel, but if his motives were wrong, what a shame that would have been. That would have been a disgrace to Christ. And how sometimes you and I can go through the motions of things. Do we come to church just to check the box? Do we come to church, we're here physically, but are we here with joy? Are we here desiring to be here? Children, the same thing with you. How often do your parents ask you to do something and you do it with the right motives of desiring to obey your parents? Or do, or, or do you fall into the pit of, of doing it just to get them off your back or to please them? But God is concerned with both. He's concerned with our conduct as well as our character in all matters. And thirdly, in line with his conduct and his character, Paul also showed great care for the people. If you look at me at verse 11 and 12, Paul says, Just as you know how we are exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul used the analogy of the nursing mother, right in the previous section. And here Paul brings in an analogy of a father. That as a father, he exhorted them. He taught them. He taught them. He, he probably corrected them. He encouraged them. Right? How, how careful that, that balance must be between teaching and correction and encouragement. Right? How, how often if we, if we lay heavy on, on correction, we can discourage but Paul laid that careful balance of, of doing the two, of exhorting as well as encouraging. And he also implored them, or we can, we can nuance this kind of, or more of testify, that Paul implored them. He, he testified to them the truth of the gospel. And he did this with great care as a father, with great affection towards them. Paul sets before us this great, this, this great example of how all of us should act within the context of not only our homes, but also the church. Because Paul talks about as a father, right? But this, this, what, what Paul's getting at is not that this only applies to men with children. But I think if we, if we look at it in terms of the larger catechism and questions 124 and 125, where it's ex expanding the fifth commandment to honor your mother and your father, what does it say there? It says that our mothers and our fathers are those who are older in the faith. That we should, we should look upon all of those older saints, all of those male older saints, as fathers in the faith. Same with mothers, that we should look up to them as, as, as mothers. And, 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 and conversely, that we should look upon those who are younger than us, right? Men, that we should look upon those who are younger than us as, as our children in the faith. And we should care for them and love them as we do our own children. Paul had this, we, we, we would teach them and encourage them. We would testify to them. And I think particularly this word testify, and if I could go out on a limb, I think that in the Reformed faith, we could do better here in the fact of testifying to one another of the goodness of God in our lives. Maybe not necessarily in the context of corporate worship, but nevertheless, coming together and telling and encouraging one another with how God has worked in our own lives. 
how God has brought us through struggles, how God has blessed us in the past, and how that has strengthened and encouraged us, and how we can come alongside those who are going through the same struggles that we have had, and God has graciously brought us through, and we can encourage them as they're going through those same struggles. And I think that in, if we take in that understanding of, of fathers and mothers and sons and daughters in the faith and couple it with this idea of testifying to one another. This is how God intended the church to operate, to be, to be bonded together, band together in fellowship and love for one another with affection and care. Paul admonished them so they would act freely as a father. He encouraged them as a father figure so that they would act gladly. And Paul testified as a father figure so that they would act reverently toward God. Paul not only dealt with them as a whole, but we read that he dealt with them, each one of them, right? Which further kind of expands this idea of Paul's care for them. Paul simply didn't stand before them and preach and then go home. Paul stood before them and preached and then went in the midst of them and saw, saw how every single one of them were doing, right? Meeting the individual needs of the person, testifying to each one of them, encouraging them. Because the bottom line is that we're all going through different things, right? We're all going through different trials in life. There's not a one-size-fits-all sermon for every single thing that we're going through. But it just undergirds the need for every single one of us to take up the, the, the work of caring for one another on an individual level, as Paul sought to do among the Thessalonians. Where did Paul expect these people to get their motivation from? You know, he lays before them a, a very high, lofty example, right? It's, very, it's a very high and lofty thing to, to proclaim that I was, Paul basically says, I was selfless among you. I was selfless, always giving. And Paul expected them to walk in that same way. But he didn't leave them without motivation and hope. In verse 12, Paul gives them the motivation and the hope. He says this, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In verse 12, we have what one commentator calls the great gospel duty and the great gospel privilege. On the one hand, Paul had laid before them a, a high calling, that they would walk, that they would pass their lives in a manner worthy and in harmony with their relation to God. Paul encourages them and implores them to walk before God in a godly manner. He implores them to follow his example and, and by implication, Christ's example. Paul lays before them this heavy charge, but at the same time, he lays before them the gospel privilege. It's twofold, a present and a future. He first says this, that God has the God who calls. The God who calls. And just to sit and resonate on that for a minute. The God who calls. The God who has called us out of our sin. The God who has called us out of the world who has opened our eyes by His Spirit to know Him, to know our Creator, to know our Sustainer, the God who calls us. And in the words of Colossians 1, He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness 
into the kingdom of, of His beloved Son, the kingdom of light. That God has called us into His kingdom, not only as His servants, but as His children, and has blessed us with every spiritual blessing that has seated, with us, with, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. That God has called them into His kingdom. And for this, this will be a great motivation for, for here in the present, right? The whole idea of, of, of God's kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, is being he, the here and the not yet, right? That we, the kingdom of Christ is here, but it is not yet here in full. The motivation that since God has done so much for them, that they would live and work in and among all their various social circles and in their family and in their church, striving to live in a manner worthy of the praise of God, They were called, they are no longer slaves to the devil and sin, but citizens of heaven. That Paul lays before them this great motivation to work diligently because they've been bought with a price. Secondly, he gives them the motivation of future glory. Paul says that God has called them unto his glory. This glory that that gives them a future and a hope. Right? Because when we think of the glory of God, we think of, we think of where we're headed to. Right? That even in this life we have trials and we have hardships. But yet, God has promised that all those who call upon His name, that are His children, He will one day come and, and bring into His kingdom. That He will bring and they will see Him face to face. You know, it strikes me when um, we think about the beatific vision, right? the Mount of Transfiguration. And both John and, Paul, and Peter were there. And what's interesting is that in both of, later on in both of their epistles, they refer back to that time when they saw Christ face, face to face with a glimpse of His glory. They both include that in their epistles. It's almost as if they never quite got over it. That glimpse of glory, that glimpse of seeing their Savior in His beauty and majesty completely enraptured their minds, so much so that they later would write to the churches telling them, in essence, you have no idea what you will behold on that day when you will look at Christ face to face, when we will see Christ in His glory. That in this life, the Christian has a taste of joy, but yet it does not hold a candle to what it will be like to behold the face of God. Paul lays before them the gospel privileges of being called into Christ's kingdom and the future hope of being called into glory. And for Paul, I think it's one thing that we would say Paul is an example to us, and he's a very good example. But Paul is still a man. And where did Paul get all this, right? Because really, if if we're to consider Paul... We have to consider that Paul is merely trying to imitate Christ. He's trying to imitate his Savior. That, that yes, in Paul, we are given this great example, but yet in Christ, we are given a supreme example of selflessness. That, that though Paul acted selfless among the Thessalonians, he could implore them and testify and encourage and exhort them to walk in the manner that he did. We can even look higher to the very example of our own Savior. Right? Jesus, who from all eternity past enjoyed perfect fellowship and communion with the Father and the Spirit. 
who needed nothing, but yet selflessly became man. He became like one of his sinful human creatures. And not only that, but that he would be willing to go to the cross for them. That he would be willing to die for them. I often wonder what was running through, this is speculative, I know, but as Jesus is being nailed to the cross, as he's looking upon the men who are driving nails through his hands, and, he's, and knowing that he's the one who's upholding their very life, he's the one who's upholding their very being and existence, and yet he's allowing them selflessly He's allowing them to drive these nails through his hands, that he would endure the cross, that he would endure the wrath poured out of God poured out upon him because of the selfless love for which he loved his elect, for which he loved his, his beloved children and his brothers and sisters. Christ is our ultimate example. Paul gives us a splendid example, and we are called to mimic that. But Christ is our ultimate example. That Christ's conduct, His character, and His care are supreme above all things, and that we should look unto Him. So as we stand upon the edge of a new week, and tomorrow morning we'll all get up and we'll go to work, whether we work in our homes or whether we work outside of the home or whether we go to our studies... As we go into this week, let us think deeply upon the selflessness of Christ. The example that we have in Paul. The the high calling that we have to live as redeemed sons and daughters of God. But yet, even in that, he's given us his spirit in which to empower us to do the work. So as we go through this week, let us be mindful of our conduct our character and our care among all of those whom we come in contact with, that we might live with the motivation and the hope that God has called us, not only now into his kingdom, but he has called us into future glory. If he should tarry, let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.